If you want to make an audiobook, go to thetalkingbook.org. That's thetalkingbook.org. Check out these amazing writers, narrators, indie publishers. Come to Asheville. We record books in a booth. Here's the show. Hello, people, my friends, my family, my countrymen. My name is Chris Hartram, and you're listening to the Talking Book Podcast. This is the show, your favorite show, where you hear excerpts from new books, the coolest books, written by amazing authors. Now, the Talking Book has been around since 2016. We record audiobooks for authors and publishers and university presses and people just like you. You can reach out if you want to work with us. We also make this podcast. And anyway, the summer has been really cool. It's the summertime right now. It's been hot as well as cool. We've had some excellent authors in the studio. Adrian Shirk, for one, who you're about to hear on this episode. Uh, What else have we been doing? We've been hanging out at the pool with the kiddos. We've been going to the Y, playing a little street fighter, doing some karate and jujitsu, a little skateboarding, a little bounce house jumping. How's your summer been? I hope your summer's been good. Um, you, if you want to see more about my summer, you can go follow me on Instagram, K Hartram. If you want to, you don't have to. Um, it's the summer life here at the talking book in Asheville, North Carolina. It's the way of the summer. Come, come look at our way. Come see our way, the way we do things. I want to know how you do things too. Um, I'm dumb. Enough of that. Today's author is Adrian Shirk. Adrian was raised in Portland, Oregon, and has since lived in New York and Wyoming. She's a frequent contributor to Catapult, and her essays have appeared in The Atlantic, Lit Hub, Atlas Obscura, among others. She teaches at Pratt Institute's BFA Creative Writing Program and lives at the Mutual Aid Society in the Catskill Mountains. We recently wrapped up production on Adrian's newest book, Heaven is a Place on Earth. Um, it's a personal odyssey of American utopian experiments. The recording sounds amazing. It's a great audio book. It's out now. You're about to hear a piece of it, and I'm going to leave links how to get the audiobook as well as the print in the show notes, so you can check that out. Um, uh, Adrian and I think it's important that you have a little context uh, about what you're going to hear in a second here. In the chapter, A Brief History of American Utopian Communities, Adrian Shirk is visiting a community land trust called Alassa Farms outside of Rochester, New York, a piece of property that is currently leased to a farm animal sanctuary. And while Shirk and two of her friends roam around the grounds in the middle of winter, she considers the layers of communal and cooperative living that, according to her own research, have taken place on this particular tract. The Seneca, the Shakers, the Foyeus, a stop on the Underground Railroad, a publicly supported model farm during the Depression, and now the Animal Sanctuary, Crackerbox Palace. She starts to question the way the ways that the public understanding of the American utopian history tends to define itself quite narrowly, and in doing so, leaves out a great deal. Anyway, that, that's some context. Um, here's the reading, Adrian Shirk, Heaven is a Place on Earth. It's 1681 or 1763 or 1830, so-and-so Janssen or Van Wart of somewhere or other, Sweden or Germany or England, decides the Lutherans or the Anglicans were sent by the devil. 
There should be no mediation between man and God, no tyrant king bequeathing spiritual access. So, he promptly breaks away to create the community of true inspiration, or God's real people, or we are the realist ones, etc. He and his small band of followers, who by then have adopted some kind of dress and mode of worship to distinguish themselves, promptly have a mass burning of Lutheran or Anglican hymnals and literature. Simple enough. They hang out in northern Europe. They live in a shared shack, or a final vestige of the commons. But then that guy, Janssen, Van Wart, etc., runs into so-and-so Bartlett or Godrich or Randolph, who himself is in the middle of trying to reform the Dutch Reformed Church, but having no luck reforming the Reformed, they join forces. They bestow prophecies. The blending of their two groups produces a new name and a new theology, the Zawar community or the Harmony Society or the Most Divine of the Most Divine. They believe in adult baptism or ecstatic dancing, or that the end is nigh, or that no one should speak in church, but often, above all, they believe in communal living, of a life where all things are held in common as modeled in the book of Acts after the crucifixion, when Christ's followers give up everything they own and go underground for 40 years or so, living in symbiotic communitarianism out of sight of the Roman Empire. So, it's the early 19th century now, and the new group, Zawar or Harmony or what have you, embarks to scope out land for a settlement in the New World. And for no reason I can figure out, they dock in New York, but often or sometimes they go all the way out to central Pennsylvania or Illinois. There they claim a tract of land in a snowy, muddy lowland near a Swedish Methodist church that they already think is heretical, and then they build semi-underground log cabins and everyone comes out from Switzerland or Sweden or Germany, tons of people dying on the way on the ship, and tons of people dying in those freezing cabins trying to live out their imagined reconstruction of first-century biblical communism. But then there are schools, tanneries, Businesses of all stripes operating in a sort of small-scale divine socialism, for a little while at least. But then something goes wrong. Something always goes wrong. Cholera or smallpox or they don't make enough money or a violent husband or theological ideological disagreements. Or usually the commune leader says that God says that he can have sex with whoever he wants or that everyone has to stop having sex altogether. Some people die. Others run off to join a different utopian community. Sometimes, and not infrequently, they run off to the Shakers, who by then have colonies all over the Northeast, though Mother Anne herself has died. Others run to cities. Others stay in the falling-apart community because they don't know what else to do. And eventually, a town forms around them, and they cash in on that. They incorporate. And within a generation, the utopian project is erased, assimilated, it's just Yellow Springs, Ohio, or New Harmony, Indiana, or Aurora, Oregon. Or it's just the Amana Corporation, or Oneida Flatware and Silverware. But at the early stages of the community's unraveling, before things have really fallen apart, so-and-so splendor for Gilbert arrives one day. He's an American, born and raised. He looks on at the tannery, the communal dinners, the women's clothing, and he says... My, my, this seems like a really cool thing you've all got going on here. Or, he says, The Lord is telling me I must start my own community, a corrective to this one. 
while just off stage or behind him someone is puking from a horrible flu or others are coming to blows about the doctrine of total depravity or the tannery is burning down. But first, he literally tours utopian communities for a decade. This happens a lot. Joining them and dropping out, or sometimes just dropping in for a bit. Woman in the Wilderness, Bohemia Manor, Mill Creek then breaks with them, or begins to revise their beliefs, and leaves when he finds he can no longer conscionably carry on. He goes to the woods, defeated, starts anew, a slightly different take on prayer, or agricultural practices, or belief about the Holy Spirit, or sex, or which rules the leader of the group is exempt from. Living with all things in common remains a constant, but the rest is up for grabs. Then, just like that, unbidden, people kind of form around him, developing a sort of celibate utopia that lives and thrives, in a way, for five years, or one year, or eight years. And then another guy visits this new commune, and he says, My, my, this seems like a really cool thing you've got going on here. But then, it's the late 19th century, or it's the early 20th century even, and before that new guy can get his utopian community up and running, his socialist, transcendentalist, communitarian settlement of whatever type, the United States is flush, wealthy, and everyone's like, who needs communitarianism? We've got houses and bread now. Utopia-making emerges in force, especially during times of economic and social precarity, after wars, depressions, natural disasters, sexual revolutions. And when a utopia issues from a Christian framework or tradition— whether during the Second Great Awakening or today in liberationist or fundamentalist communities alike, it almost unilaterally grounds the understanding of that divinely pure or sanctified life as something that takes place only by a life lived in community. Almost always, Christian or not, the American utopia vanquishes the nuclear family, the blood tie, the marriage, often sex, so that we are only, all of us, strangers and pilgrims together on the same path. But it is also often the case that when we are talking about American utopian communities, when we look at a shelf in the library dedicated to the topic, for instance, we're framing it as a historically specific phenomenon, something that happened in the 19th century, largely in western New York and its outlying colonies, that took the form of several particular movements, many of which passed through this particular piece of property, Alassa Farms, at one point or another. And it is also often the case that, under that rubric, we're talking almost exclusively about white Protestants or people who have at least gone rogue from a European Protestant theology. And it seems to me that the life those communities created, which we call American utopias, was more or less a paltry mimesis, consciously or not, of the kind of life that North American indigenous people had been living on that land for centuries and were, at that time in the mid-1800s, defending with their blood and bodies. For this reason, perhaps, these European-descendant American utopian communities are inherently tragic, not only because they are always, every single time, doomed to failure, and often quick failure, sometimes disastrous failure, 
They are tragic because they rarely consider at whose expense they exist or what kinds of privileges they've been afforded to position themselves as makers of a perfect place. Do the makers of these communities forget and always imagine that this time, unlike the others, they'll last forever? Or are they like me, a little romantically obsessed by the will to create an ideally communal life that I know will ultimately perish, that is only here for a second, that will ultimately be proved in time to have been the totally wrong thing, and yet which I must strive after anyway? Despite all my certainty of folly, I am also sincerely seeking models, skimming communities, both historical and contemporary, for what might be useful or replicable in my own life or in the lives of my friends, or, however crazy this sounds, more generally for my country people in all their variety. What are the constant forms, the possible architectures, of developing a happy or ethical life under late-stage capitalism? What do you have to give up or reduce, or invent? What does a shared ideology provide, and what does it threaten when it becomes the bedrock upon which the project exists? Could the basis of a utopian community be purely material then? Co-housing, school, organization, residency? Or just a shared car and a washing machine? And what about the horror of people not cleaning up after themselves? It is a question that had been pressing at my friends and me since our early 20s, but had become painfully urgent as the rapid piling on of adulthood had taken place and as Sweeney and I became young caretakers of his still young father in one of the most expensive cities in the world. Now, past the two-year mark of caring for Dan, it had become extremely clear that, since I do not come from a multi-generational household, nor belong to a dense city block or other organic forms of interdependence, my and Sweeney's lives will otherwise be, and already are, shaped by all the forces in the United States that, if left to work uncontested, will ebb toward isolation. But, If I think about it for more than one minute, it's not clear that I'd be a very good communard. I especially balk at all of my dreams of utopia because I am actually not a very attentive family member. I rarely make it back to the West Coast. I take forever to return my friends' phone calls. I Google my book all the time to see what people are saying. Not much. I let my mother-in-law and sister-in-law do all the cooking on Thanksgiving. I can be extremely lazy, not leaving the house for days, just writing, eating, reading, watching TV. I have been in a more or less monogamous relationship since I was 19 years old, which became my life's primary infrastructure. And while I think at least I've been a pretty decent partner for a decade, I am beginning to feel despair about the whole thing at a moment when Sweeney needs me most, though he claims to need me for nothing. How do you learn to be the kind of person who could make a communal arrangement, much more complex than a marriage or a family, work? I mean, sometimes it does work out. The model farm business operated by the strong grandson lasted for a while and helped, in some small way, the United States recoup a bit of profit and morale. And the fact that the property eventually, a generation later and from a totally different group of people, became a resting place for abused animals, having been seeded by money a century before from the profits of buggy whip manufacturing, paints a picture about the arc of time that is kind of hopeful. 
At Crackerbox Palace, there were horses everywhere, clopping along snowy paddocks, cattle, ponies, donkeys, goats, a bunny emporium, a giant hen house, all kinds of creatures tottering around in large open pens through the snow, or which had retreated into their sheds or barns. During our visit, we ran into a couple of other volunteers, locals who come to Crackerbox Palace of their own volition on weekends or free weekdays to feed and groom the animals, hang out with them, empty the slop, in a symbiotic therapeutic act. A fluffy gray and white farm cat approached us as we skirted the horse stalls, meowing, trouncing through the snow, following us even into the cold, deep drifts around the Shetland ponies. Then the cat started to lead us around, out to the disturbed horses, the one with the crooked back, the crusty mules. The cat had little puff-pant legs, stopping in front of each of the pens as we arrived, confidently leading us forward, looking back sometimes to make sure we were still there. The mules hee-hawed desperately, hoarsely, expecting snacks, their coats grown wildly into their eyes. We passed by the bachelor farmhand housing, the bunkhouse, left from the 1930s model farm era. We passed by the shaker barn, which had been turned into a museum, shut for the winter, built in the 1820s. We passed by the little welcome office, a small manufactured hut which was shut for the weekend. Next to the office was an illustrated sign, also buried in the snow, covered in line drawings of animal portraits, Cracker Box Palace, Farm Animal Haven. Crackerbox Palace is a refuge and rehabilitation center for neglected or abused farm animals. Animals brought to the palace are cared for by veterinarians, immunized, put on prescribed feed programs, and provided physical therapy. Rehabilitated animals are trained and available for adoption. Animals unable to be adopted are welcome to live out their natural lives on the farm. The sign boldly proclaims, that the farm fields will remain undeveloped forever, protected by a conservation easement held by the Genesee Land Trust. That one gives me pause. Forever? What a claim, considering the folks who started here, the Seneca, of course, and then the Shakers, the Feuerists, the Farm of Tomorrow, etc. I am very interested in human grappling with notions of forever, human hopes of forever, the folly of it gives me a sort of pleasure and a sort of peace. I suppose that is why I'm interested in layered histories on particular pieces of land, too, the way they defy notions of forever as far as we understand, sites where various stories play out in space-time unbeknown to each other, places where the historical layers are especially rhythmic or rhyming, in conversation or creative dynamic with each other, creating a gravitational pull, like ghosts who cannot see even each other and yet affect each other's energy fields nonetheless. Because why? Because I think the patterns of use in a particular place can tell us something about the place, if we listen closely, and can tell us something about what was being carried out there and even what's to come. Maybe there's a sort of story of long-game reciprocity in the end. I think of all that buggy whip money being eventually converted into an endowment for these horses' retirements. Or some other kind of circle of meaning, the justice arc of which is long. But the story is not always cheerful. The stories can twist, 
turn back on themselves or reveal endings that are less morally triumphant than they first appeared. Because here's another. When the Shakers left Sotus Bay, they moved up the road to Groveland, and they reestablished their community for another decade or so. Later, they sold that property to the state under the conditions that the property would be used for good purposes. First, it became a treatment center for epileptics. Then later, the land was sold to the prison system. Today, the old Shaker farm is now the Groveland Correctional Facility, medium security. The prison chapel is the original Shaker chapel, thus nightmarishly bringing together two of our country's most notorious innovations, utopian thought and the dystopian prison industrial complex. What does it say about our country that the Shaker movement could be enfolded into the project of mass incarceration at the very moment when our prison system has become not only the largest in the world in terms of population, but the largest in the world per capita? To me, it suggests that the utopian is never far from its opposite, that our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness, that power will always accumulate in the same ways and marshal the same violence, and that growth in this culture works only in one direction. Ephemerality is a virtue. All movements that are truly pure of heart will die quickly and return to the compost heap and show up later in the soil of society in some other form. The most successful communities will not even leave a trace, and you will never hear of them nor read about them in books, and you will walk on the land where something good tried to happen once, and you will not know that anything happened there at all. Okay, that was Adrienne Shirk reading from her new audiobook, Heaven is a Place on Earth, which was recorded at the Talking Book in the heart of Asheville, North Carolina. Heaven is a Place on Earth, Adrian Shirk. You can get it on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. I'm going to leave links in the show notes. You can go to thetalkingbook.org to find the audiobook. Thanks so much to Adrian for coming to the studio. It's coming to Asheville, spending time with us at The Talking Book. Thanks to Dave Burr for editing this episode, our QC editor, Sarah Little, our designer and my wife, Danny Hartram, uh, my kiddos, the lifeguards at the pool, and especially you, the listener. Without you, we record this stuff. Who's listening? We need the listener. You're listening. If anyone's listening right now, you, that's you. You're the listener. I love you. Come record your book with us this summer. Hit me up at thetalkingbook.org. My name is Chris Hartram, signing off. See you poolside. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy. Chasing sister squares I was lit Before I knew that you were there Like an angel Who has forsaken certainty Sleeping in the square I was lit Before I knew 
the window 